Welcome to Nutritank's podcast. When you tune in, you're going to listen to a fantastic array of speakers speaking about things in the following fields such as food, farming, nutrition, lifestyle medicine and other areas of health. We can't wait to have you with us on this journey. Millennials, coddled entitled, narcissistic, work shy and bloody lazy. We want to redeem millennials and give ourselves a good reputation. We have poured endless passions and hard work into Nutritank and this podcast. We hope you learn and enjoy. Hello everyone, it's your host Ali Jaffe and welcome to today's episode on Nutritank's Nourish Your Mind podcast. I can't tell you how excited I am to introduce today's speakers on the podcast. So to start off with, let's introduce our glorious double act, Lisa and Alana McFarlane, also known as the Mac Twins. So Lisa and Alana's interest in gut health began following their contribution to medical research during the twin research project that was done at King's College by Professor Tim Spector. So here they discovered that despite being 100% genetically identical, that their guts only had 30% of the same microbiota, explaining the importance of environmental factors on our bodies and how there really isn't a one-size-fits-all diet solution. So in 2017, the Mac Twins, having had the most incredible DJ career, founded The Gut Stuff, an engaging platform bringing gut health education to the masses. They wanted to address how the impact of gut health can have both a physical and mental impact. Not only are they trailblazers in gut health education, but the Mac Twins are extremely successful DJs. They've performed globally for Armani, Diet Coke, Mac Cosmetics, you name it. And close to home, they're the official DJs for Love Island. You may also recognise them from their appearance on Channel 4's Food Unwrapped, The Secret Life of Twins on ITVV and BBC Horizon. You can find them on Instagram at The Gut Stuff and their website is www.thegutstuff.com. Our next guest, Dr Ruri Robertson, like some of us, wasn't sure what he wanted to study at university. A love of food led him to study a BSc in human nutrition at the University College Dublin and he hasn't stopped studying food since. He went on to complete a PhD in microbiology at University College Cork, was a Fulbright Scholar to Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital. He's currently completing his postdoctoral fellowship at Queen Mary University of London. His research interests are mainly focused on nutrition and the gut microbiome, especially in child growth and development. He's a real brainiac and has many publications. Alongside this, he's got an impressive media portfolio, writing many articles and giving talks at events and on the radio. You may recognise him from his fantastic TED talk, Food for Thought, How Your Belly Controls Your Brain. If you haven't watched that, listen to it straight after this podcast. He also has just started a new podcast himself called Biomes, interviewing some of the leading microbiome experts in the world about their work. You can find him on Instagram at the Doctor, and his website is www.ruarirobertson.com and you can find his TED Talk on YouTube. Hello everyone, it's such a pleasure to have you on the pod. Thank you for giving up your Sunday afternoon. Um, I think we've got a very magical team with us today um, talking all things gut health. 
So I just wanted, um, we're going to start off with the wonderful Mac twins. I just wanted them to briefly give themselves a little intro. So over to you, Alana and Lisa. Um, hi everyone. We uh, are primarily DJs and presenters, uh, but we are also co-founders of The Gut Stuff, which is uh, an online platform to raise awareness about gut health and is now yeah products in a shop and events and a beast in itself (laughs) (laughs) um so how did you start the gut stuff could you tell us how you actually got interested in it i know i mentioned in your intro a little bit about how you both participated in the research study with professor tim Spector at king's but just give us a little bit of insight into why it yeah why it became so important on your radar as fun loving DJs. <laughs> um, well, I guess it was it's kind of it was kind of the perfect storm of a lot of things at once. So obviously, like the kind of yeah um, linear like chronology of it was uh, Tim asked us. So we obviously we were one of the youngest sets of twins um, at Twins Research Facility. So we were kind of like up for everything, and we'd had. Um, very different health pathways. So Alana had arthritis when we were nine, you got it, wow. seven, seven, um, which I was actually strangely envious of because she got a lot of attention. Um, so, <laughs> and our health pathways were completely different. So I think that coupled with the fact that we were brought up in working class Scotland um, <laughs> was like we were like the perfect um, twins to kind of do the initial gut health research on. Anyway, we were like, okay, Tim, what do we have to do? And he was like, you have to send your poo off in the post every day for two months. And we were like, fine. Uh, and then... Yeah, like, literally into the post box. Literally into the post box. Um, yeah, still testing kits weren't what they are now, put it that way. And um, and then we had to have a couple of colonoscopies, which we were furious about because the doctor was really hot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I texted Tim when we came out of it. This is like the inside... Uh, behind the scenes of the study, <laughs> text him, WhatsApp him when I came out, just being like, Tim, have you got nothing in with research? I swear I'm going to be absolutely furious. Um, <laughs> I love it. WhatsApp at that time. Might not have been WhatsApp. Um, yeah, and anyway, they did. So they found out from our bodies that we only had about 30% the same microbiome, and we were like, we didn't even know what our gut was, never mind the microbiome. Uh, but it was kind of at the time on Instagram where a lot of people were following restricted eating. Um, and we were like, actually, all this stuff that we're learning from these scientists, we did a YouTube series, and our, the only reason we called it the gut stuff was because our pals were like, one minute you're on the red carpet interviewing people at the Brits, and the next minute you're speaking to Sam Jean Klaus at Reading University about probiotics, like, what is going on? Um, and we were like, oh, just that gut stuff, just that gut stuff. And then <laughs> we set up the website because we did the YouTube series, and we wanted, like, ethically, we wanted somewhere for people to go. Long story short, um, turns out people are pretty interested in gut health, and so are we. Um, so yeah, that's the kind of that's it in a nutshell. There was a lot of twists and turns, but I guess like we didn't, we don't definitely don't come from a health and wellbeing background. I think it's similar to, to what you guys set up NutriTank, and we already talked about this as well. Like health is just seen as not being ill, and wellbeing is something that Gwyneth Meltzer talks about over here. And actually, people are 
well, where we're from, certainly weren't marrying the two, and we were brought up on deep fried pizza and chips, Greg softies and Ten Lambert and Butler for lunch. Like that's um, where we're from, and actually, the, the information that we were, we realised that health and well-being is quite a middle-class luxury, and it doesn't, it really doesn't have to be. So yeah, mm-hmm. that's box rant. Wow, Done. such <laughs> a it's such an interesting kind of area and arena to pivot in from like you say like interviewing people on the red carpets to now talking to scientists and um of course we've got Rory here who is a scientist so um before we dive deep into the gut stuff could you just um introduce yourself as well Rory and um then also tell our listeners how you guys have collaborated and how you guys know each other yeah well I'm the I'm kind of on the other end of things. I don't have anything as exciting as sending off my poo in the post. I'm usually the one receiving it on the other end. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's me. So, uh, yeah, I don't know which is more exciting. Um, no, I, I was kind of the same. I, I never really had that much interest in, in microbes and bacteria. My, my original background is in nutrition, so I had no idea what I wanted to study when I was going to university, and it was kind of coming down to the last few weeks. And my parents remember were on to me saying, oh, what do you want to do? You know, you have to put something down. So um, I kind of said, you know, what, what are you interested in? I, I loved eating food. I came from a very kind of foodie family. My mum's a very good cook. So there so happened to be a nutrition course starting up in, in university. So I studied that. And um, yeah, over those few years, kind of got exposed to the life of research and science. And um, yeah, kind of started getting interested in it. And again, as I was finishing university, still wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but had that experience in working in a lab and really kind of finding out the excitement of, um, you know, how the body works and being right on the front line, you might say, um, of, you know, finding out those discoveries. So, um, yeah, I went on and did a PhD uh, and it kind of started off in nutrition, but I was lucky enough, I guess, to be within a research center, which were kind of one of the best in the world at that time at uh, studying the gut microbiome. And they were kind of the emerging leaders in this field. And that was in University College Cork mm-hmm. uh, in, in Ireland. And so kind of by chance, I got involved in kind of gut microbiome stuff. You know, my PhD wasn't really originally about it. It was about other aspects of nutrition in, in early life. Um, and I, I kind of wasn't surprisingly that interested in stool samples and you know analyzing analyzing the gut but uh, slowly learned to love it um over a couple of years and yeah i've kind of ridden the wave since i've been very lucky that i'm kind of involved in this area at the right mm. time um, and yeah i still do that to this day so at the moment i'm uh, doing a postdoc in queen mary university of london and my research is looking at the gut microbiome in young kids um, and how it might be associated with their growth, particularly in the context of chronic and severe acute malnutrition um, in sub-Saharan Africa. But yeah, I look at the, the gut microbiome and various other microbiomes around the body um, in various different disease states and, and health states. That's so fascinating, and especially because you're looking at kids um, in early development and like um, Alana and Lisa were just mentioning, they only had 30% of similar microbiota and uh, one of them had a chronic condition at such a young age so yeah it's a really fascinating and emerging area and definitely the trendy thing right now um so could you just tell our listeners a little bit about how you guys know each other what work you've done together i can't remember your first role i don't know 
now. I, I went to talk in Kings. You were presenting, there was some sort of microbiome evening or something like that. And there was a few different academic talks too. And there was, a, you know, it was one of these kind of free wine and cheese nibbly things afterwards. Gotta go. Uh, <laughs> I just moved to London at the time. So and I, I, I was kind of into science communication myself and I kind of liked doing talks and kind of was trying to set up a bit of an Instagram page myself. So I was like, oh, these two girls, they're cool. They're, they're kind of doing got stuff um so yeah i think i went over and i was chatting to lisa and yeah that was that was pretty much it we kind of chatted then and then we kind of met up and um just, yeah decided to kind of see what we could do together so yeah. to, once more is it through the stops trying to be a clever clock so i want them to come and work for us but you keep going <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. it's frustrating you need to clone him <laughs> yeah no that and then you did some amazing we asked you did some articles on the site and they were just all like really funny and exactly our tone of voice and right. um, just recently done a project really chapter in the book is amazing so yeah it's literally the last bit of the whole book oh great oh my goodness oh, yes it's good it looks cool wow the finale, Rudy. With the finale. Yeah, the big, big show. So it's a good match. And so, yeah, I mean, like you said, it's quite a cool sequence. You guys participated in the study and then it was kind of like, I guess you became quite empowered from it. Um, hence why, you know, you went on your trajectory with the gut stuff and then Rory's on the other end of the spectrum actually analysing the stools. So, yeah, that's why I really wanted to get you guys on because I think you, yeah, really complement each other and it'll be really interesting for our audience to hear both perspectives. So, um, back to talking to the lovely Mac twins, um, I want you to kind of just set the scene and tell us a little bit more about what it was like to be a participant of um, Prof Tim's research. Uh, we're quite big fans of him and yeah, I've met him quite a few times and spoken at a couple conferences with him. Great sense of humour. Uh, very interesting man. Charismatic man. He's a charismatic man. Very interesting man. Um, and yeah, really interesting that he, I remember he was telling me something about, from analysing his own gut, that he can tolerate regular Coke more than he can some fruits just because of yeah, how... Orange juice. Orange yeah. juice, was it? Yeah. Fascinating. So our WhatsApp group of Tim is called the Glucose Gang. And <laughs> um, when we through the research, it was another behind the scenes. Um, when we were going through the research, it was on fire. The WhatsApp group, Tim was like, I've just had this orange juice. Go, 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 get it. We were hooked up. So this, that was the second study we did when we were hooked up to, um, like, Libra mon monitors. Um, but, yeah, I guess going through the research, we hadn't realised quite... I mean, if someone had told us about medical research five years previously, I thought it was just, like, students getting paid to take Viagra. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Firstly, didn't get paid. And secondly what it was actually like but we were on quite strict diet how so old were you guys at the time when you participated in the first lot 25 and we were on tour at, oh it was edinburgh tim basically said to us is there one month of the year where you're going to be able to only have processed foods and drink alcohol and we were like that's quite often but <laughs> it was a solid month then and um, the edinburgh festival right and we were doing a we were doing a dg live dg battle interactive show 
and we only were allowed to do that. So for the first week, we were like, oh, this is great. We'd come off stage at 4 a.m., just like all the cider, all the chips. But at one point, we were DJing for Tia Maria during the day on some milk truck. And then we um, and then we had to do the show at night. And I was like, all the, we were having these Tia Maria milk cocktails that were curdling in our stomach because we were only having processed foods and alcohol. And it was just like, I was like, Again, the next moment I was telling if you get nothing from this research, I swear to God. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, we had to have only processed foods for the first month, and the second month was HelloFresh boxes, which mm-hmm. were really new at the time. And we were like, yay, free food, this is great. Uh, but some of that, so that one was invasive in terms of like, you know, just like it was, it was quite, quite a big lifestyle change. We had to yeah. eat at the same time, we had to record everything you're eating. And then the next time, the next study we did was based on um, blood sugar spikes and that was that a month that one and we had to eat uh, no I think it was only two weeks oh yeah and yeah that one was a bit stricter because we had like four scientists on call at any one time on an app and um, yeah the funny story behind that was they were like we had to log everything we were eating and take pictures and weigh yeah. everything and we had like these little cards to put next stuff and that and um, <laughs> the, the, uh, we got a text from the scientist being like your, it was like your blood sugar level last night was like spiking all the shop. We were like, we had a lot of Prosecco. And they were like, how many glasses? We were like, four. And they were like, looks more like eight on this. I was like, yeah. You can't lie to a scientist. They're like they're human not, detectives. Like, <laughs> they did actually tell the truth. Because there isn't it. Obviously, of course, there's no point in not telling the truth. <laughs> but yeah, and also we just kind of, it was just, we actually found out as well the foods that our blood sugar levels spike yeah. at. So we got an email, but I think you can know too much. So we just deleted the emails. Mm. Um, I agree. No, you can know too much of it. And Mm. yeah, it was like, we were like, now let's just delete them. I wanted to ask you guys, like, if you had contact with any of the other twins and their experiences. And like, if you guys just like had general um, kind of opinions about how you found it and the kind of maintenance aspect. Because I guess if you have, if you are predisposed to certain kind of, you know, um, like if you've had an eating disorder in the past or you're predisposed to kind of that control, it can lead to, you know, a bit of kind of neuroses, like what you're saying, and then you find out actually the specific details of what your body actually kind of functions best on and what it doesn't, which is kind of, you know, what I'll be talking to Ruri later on about the developing kind of world of personalised nutrition, which so many people want, but then the other side of the coin is how much does that actually, you know, impact your kind of mental health and does it lead to decision fatigue because you know too much so yeah, I think, um, it's, it's difficult as well the other sort of aspect is it is it the competitive nature and we don't get competitive against each other on anything really and um, it's more like us against the world and um, but with this we got competitive with it which was which was weird, wasn't it? But um, oh, I was like, I've got loads of acumencia. No, no, no. Very acumencia. We um, actually made some friends for life. So Chris Halenga, uh, who owns Copperfield Charity. Oh, I love um, we met... Yeah, at medical school, we've got Copperfield Charity. My housemate does so much work for them. Oh, yeah. yeah. So Chris, uh, Chris has got a twin, Marin, and uh, we met through twin research, and now we're like so close, like really good friends. So actually, yeah, it's brought us more than just knowing what to eat and, you know, where, where the company was born, but it's also brought us some great friends. So that's how you sort of know that you're on your right path. Yeah. <laughs> No, and it's amazing, and I guess, um, like, for our listeners, just to kind of set the scene as to why identical twins are so cool for this kind of research, is because 
it allows the researchers to really look at what is contributing out of genetics and environment. And I just think it's so fascinating that, like you said, you're brought up in the exact same way. And so are the other twins, probably, you know, that um, were on the same project as you, but you had such different outcomes. Yeah. So, also, it's yeah. like a, a complex, for Joe Bloggs, I feel like that's quite a comf- complex notion for people to get their heads around if you're not from a scientific mm, background. Completely. But, what did you think? What were your initial reactions? What did you think when you first heard that? Well, we were just like, oh, yeah, that kind of makes sense, but also blows apart everything we've ever known about nutrition or, you know, one-size-fits-all diets. And, I mean, we needed cabbage foot, ma- cabbage foot diet pre-Magaluf 2005. We've done literally every fad, fad diet <laughs> known to man. And <laughs> Maga, like, I did Maga. <laughs> <laughs> and then we got, like, 400 litres of vodka, like, oh, good for us um, oh but yeah it was a real seminal kind of thing for us because like look if we can't be sold the same diet yeah no one can and that i think is why partly why the gut stuff's worked because we're not selling 12 week program programs or saying to people this is that this is the you know the miracle cure for gut health or here's the magic bullet or here's what works for me this is what worked for you it's not that at all it's just like look here's the facts you're going to have to do a bit of trial and error, quite a lot of trial and error, uh, to find out what works for you because none of us, because no one else is going to be able to tell you that. Mm-hmm. And I think that is quite empowering in itself, mm-hmm. uh, or it could be, hopefully. So tell us, now that we're on to it, what exactly does the gut stuff do? So you mentioned you're not about projecting those fad diets, which is why we love working with you. <laughs> so what do you guys do? And um, yeah, tell us a little bit about what um, yeah you can find from your work. Yeah, so we it started off just purely as an educational platform. We've got an amazing um, kind of team of loads of different types of scientists around us. So everyone from liver specialists to people that are looking at Parkinson's research. And actually for us, it was just about kind of disseminating that information. Then we started to do live events because we were like, basically we were going to supper clubs and at one end, we were going to supper clubs, you were paying 90 quid and get a tiny bit of sauerkraut and having fish and chips on the way home because you were still hungry from mm-hmm. like a gut. And then we were going to our pal supper clubs um, that were like deep fried, uh, deep fried food and all of the whiskey in the world and we're like actually there's a middle ground where we can learn about gut health but it doesn't have to be like a typical well-being-y yeah. uh, so well, we could still have fun and get drunk and so we had kombucha cocktails stuff anyway we started out with them and we, we, we kept selling out but there just wasn't any way to we were selling at 120 people for dinner um, but there wasn't any way to really scale that we wanted to reach more people and mm. make it more accessible. so we took over Old Street Station wow <laughs> overestimated the amount of work that is that is um, epic yeah <laughs> and then we took that on tour um and we were just planning another tour for this summer uh but that'll happen next year now um but yeah so and then we've moved into products so we've got um more products coming out we do gut diaries so we work with gps and dietitians and nutritionists and gastroenterologists uh, those some of those diaries are in clinic um, we have uh, B2B, so we go into places like Facebook, Accenture, Aegon, um, and teach them about uh, nutrition and well-being, but not in like a do yoga, drink a green smoothie way, just in like, you know, really simple lifestyle tips. What else do we do on it? Uh, <laughs> drop in nutrition clinics when we do the tours, so you can come and see a nutritionist for a tenner. 
For a yeah, standard, no. that's amazing. So ex- yeah. so accessible. So we're just trying to basically democratise that service. Yes, yes. Um, a lot of people don't need in-depth. Mm. You know, if you do, then we send them right back to the GP. We're just working out how we build that out. Um, in a way that's accessible and affordable for everyone and obviously that's quite difficult we had a free astrogitionist service on the website um, what else have we got we've got yeah, education is always the top of the rung so uh, and also educate you know a lot of time you go to these health and wellness conferences you're just preaching to the converted they all know mm, it anyway. the worried well i know the worried well mm. so we always make a conscious effort to go to places like we've been on building sites we go to schools you know we, we pop up in places that you wouldn't expect us um and that's how we how we've driven the business and you know what we've um what we've always when we're pivoting the business like what what our main goal is and is to make sort of give give people the facts to empower themselves and then give them the tools that's that's affordable and accessible to be able to improve their gut health themselves so can you like give us an example about like a kind of conversation you have with say someone who is so on the other end of the spectrum of the worried row like some guy on a construction site that you know loves his beer, loves his builder's tea, like the classic. Um, and what you kind of say to kind of not come across as preaching, but just come across as almost just drip feeding information in an engaging way around gut health. How do you go about those conversations? I guess, you know, we've come from that background. So we know it's like speaking to our uncles and yeah. actually without like not patronising them. I mean, the first bit is like, what you mean my beer belly? And you're like, Sort of, pal, not really. Uh, <laughs> and I think, like, explaining the concept of there's another ecosystem living in, around, and on you yeah. that stuff massively. And these little guys are clever, and you've got to keep them happy. The science is really new. Um, but then, like, stuff like fiber, people don't know. And that's so simple. Everyone's getting it already. So that's our kind of start for 10 is like fiber, and then just like telling them the facts around processed food. I think as well um, and, and then, it's like saying like you know like we're not angels we're still not angels and we're very much on the on the journey but here's you know some facts 70 percent of your immune systems held in your gut and normally if you give people facts yeah. or you know 90 percent of serotonin is produced in your gut and things like that people you can see the sort of light bulbs it's, it's like what people told us when we started the research what was the little nuggets of wisdom that really switched yeah. our which really switched our head on or, or ignited some sort of, um, you know, and then that's what excites us when we go to, like, especially when you go to workplaces and there's maybe 300 people in the room and 20 people already know about gut health and by the end of it, you know, all the chatter behind it, people coming up to us and going, this is blowing my mind, like, how did I not know mm-hmm. uh, important my gut was? And that's the sort of thing that keeps the fire in our bellies and, you know, what, what, um, it's probably a harder path to carve than just popping up at well-being events every so Completely. often. But yeah, it just it just it doesn't add to the. And people are like, oh, here's the recipe for overnight overnight oats with you know dragon's blood, and now I'm, I made it standing on my head doing you know whatever mindfulness, and it just yeah. doesn't perpetuate the thing that it's not for everyone, and that just perpetuates that idea that this thing is something that's uh, aspirational. And not inspirational, and it shouldn't be. It's not like that. It's for everyone. 
completely agree with that. And I think it's a very saturated market. Like if anyone was to start like a health and fitness page tomorrow and expect it to go somewhere, I'd probably like advise them not to because it's so saturated. I think you guys are so unique in the sense you have a public and media presence already, but you've come from a background and are so humble with it that you know the difference you can make to the everyday person rather than the worried well, which is what is so crucial. And also how complimentary it is to our work because obviously we're all about helping every type of patient possible through a change in the medical system so yeah. that it isn't just people who have the money and the means to get on their nutrition and lifestyle change journey but it's actually part of you know a prescription that a doctor hands you it's not just the drugs it's about the lifestyle changes and the diet changes you can make too so I think it's really amazing um, how you came about it, even if it was like by accident. And I think that's how all the best things kind of start. Um, so you mentioned you were on like that process through diet and everything. And like you are obviously on the party scene. Can you like tell our listeners a little bit about, um, so you've mentioned the nuggets of wisdom that you were told at the start, but then what did you practically start doing that were kind of, um, beneficial changes to your lifestyle um, from getting involved in this research project? Like what were the first things you started incorporating in your diet, lifestyle changes? Like how did it all start? I think, I mean, I don't know, a different, but for me it was more like, yeah, cutting out on some of the full processed foods, like thinking a bit about not necessarily what I was eating, but when I was eating uh, and then obviously we start. We went wild on the kombucha and the kefir and sauerkraut, and you know <laughs> that's exactly our taste palettes anyway. So we genuinely love it. And then yeah, trying to up our fiber, the behavioral changes of you know uh, variety and thinking. You know that's switching that mindset from actually there's another wee family in there mm. that we don't know what they like yet. They could be fussy. We don't know what they like, so let's eat a broad range of. Um, fruit and veg to help them out and I think yeah and that was and, and I guess like reevaluating where we got our sources of information from as well um, and I, I, well, I think for, for so many years we um, thought about diet as restriction and something you did two weeks before you went on holiday and mm -hmm. what we changed our mindset was about adding stuff in so having more fiber trying fermented foods and uh, just completely changed the way we thought about um, our lives really um, and, and, and just, you know, you know, the links between, like, I'll say the gut brain access and things like that. It was really a switch of what's going on in here is really affecting up here and vice versa. And um, it just makes you think twice, really, about. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 you know, we ran hard and fast in our 20s and, um, like, DJing, it was long, lots of traveling, late late nights early mornings getting up to travel again and it was about you know if we keep hammering our bodies like this for another 10 years then you know we're not we were like two to sell bunnies in our 20s and um, that was ever last forever yeah and i think that is the general mindset and it's almost so remarkable you had that opportunity that offered you this kind of change in your psychology and how you viewed things but you're still yeah. you know enjoying your lives just as much and doing what you love so your attitudes changed. How do you think, uh, from what since you've started the gut stuff, how do you think the public's attitudes have changed? Um, as we know that gut health is such a trendy thing at the moment. Like, what do you think some of the positives that have come, but then perhaps some of the negatives that have also come with more people discussing 
food and lifestyle all the time i think that the positive thing you know there's there's lots of positive things in it. I mean, it's mental as when we talk about gut health to our pals and nobody knew. And now we, we knew that there was going to be a switch in our careers when at dinner parties people wanted to hear more about gut health than they did about DJ gigs that we were doing. And that's, I think, when we... And that shift happened quite quickly, actually, I think. Right. <laughs> and, yeah, I guess... I guess so the, the, it's like a double-edged sword, isn't it? So the positive things that I think people are starting to look at science a bit more and people are starting to get their head around bacteria and what that means and the, and that actually a diet might not be like the cabbage soup diet <laughs> and it could be a lifestyle choice mm. rather than a, one I said something you do a couple weeks before. The problem with it is, is that because the research is still so new and a bit murky at times, um, then cowboys have ridden into town very quickly, uh, peddling stuff that doesn't have any scientific evidence behind it. Mm. But we all have a job to educate the public to know that if you're spending your hard-earned cash on it, it might not have any... It's like apple cider vinegar as an example. Maybe, is it good for some people's guts? Maybe, yeah. Do some people like the taste of it? Absolutely. Is there any hard scientific evidence behind it? Not really, not yet. But if someone wants to try it, go for gold. And it's so confusing. It's like, you cannot have that if there is no scientific evidence. But we're not saying that, people aren't saying that you can't have it. We're saying that, um, you know, there's a slice and scale stuff. Same thing with kombucha. Is it all fermented in the way it should be in traditional kombucha? No. Is someone swapping it for a Diet Coke? Brilliant. You know what I mean? And I think that nuanced mm-hmm. thing, black and white, um, and it doesn't help when people in the industry are fighting with each other mm-hmm. and shooting information then it just doesn't help anyone especially not the public because they don't even know what a scientific trial is never mind anything else i think as well i think also another flip side of that coin is that a lot of what is being peddled you know detox teas detoxes mm. in general absolute nonsense that's that's dangerous for mm. for for the public and i think you know we've all got a responsibility to not push products like that and have the science there but really be apparent about and open about where the science is. Mm. And you guys are quite unique in that you come from that kind of celebrity media background and you've gone the completely ethical route with having a team full of scientists and researchers backing up your products and backing out your public facing messages. So how do you think we can actually like clone you guys and get kind of more regulation when it comes to those kind of influencer type celebrities who get on social media to talk about their well-being and health fit and fitness journey when we know that no one size fits all but they're kind of peddling this work for me guys this is completely going to work for you how do you think the conversation can change i mean i think obviously like there has to be systemic change where mm. you know legal change i think that has to happen but it ain't happening quickly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and at the minute, it's a case of whose voice is the loudest or who's willing to spend more money on ad spend. And that's fine, but I think, you know, the truth will out in some ways and it's not going to change now, but all you can do is run your, run your race, stay on your path and do what, you know, the amount of money that we could potentially have made if we had just said yes to everything with the gut stuff. And it's just, I mean, we say yes to 2% of stuff mm. because that's not why we started it. It's not what we're about. Yes, we need to keep the wool from the doors and have money coming in and make a proper old commercial business. We took investment. That has to happen. That's the thing. But you need to do things that, you know, that, you, that 
that help you get up in the morning. And I think that actually we've had a lot of guidance and help mm-hmm. and with that. And, not, you know, we've got someone solely employed for compliance. <laughs> like, it's that's... But, you know, we just didn't want to be the other thing. I think we actually had a bit more of a... People thought we were going to be that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and we probably had to... It just it didn't feel like we were going loads the other way. But we probably would have been shot down quicker, I would think. I think it's happening organically. I think, you know, even even what's ha- been happening in the last sort of eight to ten weeks, I think people have seen a shift in who we're looking up to, who we're mm-hmm. clapping for every Thursday night, who we're admiring. And I think I think that is organically going to change. Um, well, I hope so. Anyways. I hope so too. Yeah, I do, I do agree with you. I think in some sense, COVID has shown us that at the end of the day, you have to really follow evidence base and, um, you know, in line with what is out there in terms of the research. But at the same time, you know, there's still people that have tried to, you know, peddle fraudulent things. Um, and it's a really difficult, it's difficult muddy waters to kind of navigate because sometimes, and especially in the healthcare world, like sometimes patients know more than the doctors in the nutrition and kind of well-being space and you know they're not necessarily looking at the right sources and sometimes they do know more and it's just really hard if you know the doctor knows absolutely nothing um and they're also looking at kind of non-regulated sources as well so um it is all about kind of having that credibility and all you know um all being on the same page i guess yeah yeah and i think you know what we always try and do at the gut stuff is even you know our instagram or we're not one opinion exactly. saying that what i'm saying is correct you know mm-hmm. we've got a team of you know and a lot of the time nutritionists and dietitians don't agree but we're like no we need to have everyone around the table so that we can come out of there with an unbiased view and whether that is here's two opinions you choose mm-hmm. who, who's you believe are doing more research and i think you know we're just about to change all the website to uh, you know, have a lot more content education on it, but also have places, other places that people can go to find other opinions or further mm-hmm. read it. But you want to delve deeper into this part of science, here's your, your route to be able to do that. And that's been really important to us from day dot. Obviously, you know, we've had a bit of backlash, like you're not the experts. Like, we don't have to be the experts. We're on the journey with everyone else. We've got a team of experts behind us um, that are relaying the science as, as it's coming off. And I think... Um, yeah, that's always been important to us, that sort of unbiased attitude. Exactly, and that's something we definitely align with because with Nutrishank we try to be as apolitical as possible because, like you mentioned, dietitians and nutritionists argue, doctors also argue, some think they know loads about nutrition and some, you know, try and kind of, yeah, some do stay in their lane and don't say anything and it's all quite complicated, but what we want to do is just not sit in one kind of dietary camp and just show the evidence and then it's up to the person to make their own informed decision and i think it is always quite tricky territory when people just sit in one dietary camp like i'm i'm just going to be vegan and just follow vegan things for the rest of my life and any you know i'm going to shame meat eaters and all of that because you're not going to really create that kind of systemic change if you're that extremist um so yeah it is a complicated kind of field to navigate but um yeah it's all about being backed up by the experts and by the science for sure 
I think as well, I think, you know, a lot of people in that in the wellness industry live in their little London bubble. Like, the rest of the population do not think this way. Do you know what I mean? They don't even know anything that you're, the words that you're talking about. They sort of put jaggery in this recipe. I mean, what's, where, what's jaggery and where can you get it? Do you know what I mean? People are so disillusioned yeah. with their own bubble and their own thing. You're like, no, this is not how the rest of the population mm-hmm. lives. Um, and that's a big problem as well, I think, in, in the health and wellness world. Yeah, no, absolutely. Everyone's in their echo chambers and, yeah, it does, privilege does come into it. But then on the other side of the coin, I was listening to a talk yesterday that said the complete, like, the complete other end of the spectrum of, um, you know, food doesn't actually have to be expensive, like healthy food, because tin sardines and beans are the cheapest things you can buy and they have some of the most key nutrients for your gut. Um, yeah. But I guess some, you know, brands and whatever project things um, that are more expensive and harder for people to access, but you can make it accessible, which I think is really what you guys stand for. So um, what kind of tips would you give to people if they wanted to kind of start on this journey? We always we always start with fibre, don't we? Um, <laughs> we're, all eat, we're all eating fibre, we just need to up it. Um, and I know even for us personally, like in lockdown, we've been... Um, really tracking how much fibre we're having and uh, yeah it isn't I, I even I'm not having enough and I show it should so that's always our first port of call really is um, up, up your old fibre intake um, yeah fibre variety is similar as well you know like we have veggie checklists on our site and like we said like we didn't know what an avocado was until we moved to London we're not mm-hmm. coming like have some radicio and then it's like it's simple stuff and actually uh, it's like you're saying, like tins of beans, like all that kind of thing. I think people have a misconception that in order for something to be a functional food, whether that's functional on a, you know, as a title or you know, it has to be expensive and be from plant organic, and it's just you know not the case at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, fiber variety, and, and no, and then like food diaries not for calorie counting but just for you know having a wee look at you see a pattern we had a guy that filled out a diary i think laura tilt told us a story um, i love and, laura oh i didn't know you worked with oh, her what a queen she, oh, yeah, yeah she actually taught me because she taught on the culinary medicine um course at bristol which we helped get rupee dr rupee Orger for our audience doctor's kitchen to pilot at bristol um as part of one of our modules we can choose because uh, I was super passionate about doing it, and she was one of the dietitians that taught us all. Yeah, yeah. she's our like, yeah, her and Sophie Medlin are our go-to dietitians. They, they get, we, they get wheeled out for panels always. <laughs> um, yeah, so food diaries, that's that's it. That's the kind of three things that I would say take away, and then just prior fermented foods if you yeah, can. Yeah, fermented foods. And just read up on it. You know, there's loads of diff- there's loads of cool information out mm. there. Um, Rudy's new podcast, I'm sure, is going to be an absolute wealth of information. Um, and yeah, I was going to say you could listen to it on a commute, but <laughs> no commute at the moment. Commute <laughs> to your living room. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, guys. One sec. I'm just. So, um, can you tell listeners a little bit about what your favourite gut-friendly um, food ingredients are and meals that you've had, especially if you've been a bit more creative and daring during lockdown? Yeah, I mean, sourdough all day, every day. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> um, is what I would say. Firstly. We've started um, fermenting Fridays. Hashtag yeah. fermenting Fridays. Um, so yeah, we have been fermenting quite a lot. Super easy, just getting some raw honey, putting some garlic in it, and it ferments itself over like the course of a month, which is so easy and tasty. Um, and just little tricks, like you know, if you're making a lasagna, swap half the meat out for lentils. Lisa's a really good cook. I am rubbish. Um, so I'm, I'm just, I just keep it simple most of the time. Um, yeah, and then just like, you know, overnight oats and stuff like that. Like, I think overnight oats sounds like a kind of thing that we were talking about with people before. Um, but it's all this stuff's really simple. And like, I've, I actually was making my own kefir and it's, it went a bit wild over the heat. So it's, I put it to sleep in the fridge for a bit because it got a bit overexcited. And is it very a... noisy? I know they can be so noisy. They like try and speak to you, the bacteria, because they're like fizzing with all the carbon. Yeah, well, so. these ones were just like going absolutely cray cray because it was wow. quite cray. So yeah, they've been put back in their place in the fridge. Um, but yeah, our website as well. They've got and our, we've got um, these fibre muffins. Oh, um, yeah. They're really high in fibre and they also don't taste rubbish. So always a perk. Yeah, our mum made them. She's like, this works all right. And do you have any tips? So we're all about balance, and I like to drink as much as anyone else does, but, you you know, still being a student and all, but it is about moderation. So how have you guys kind of managed, you know, because alcohol consumption and the gut microbiome are obviously related, so how have you guys managed that aspect over the years? So, I mean, not well. It's kind of stopped. Uh, binge drinking, I would say. Yeah. Um, on our, we uh, Gautam Meta, who is a liver specialist at UCL, um, he's basically had the speed dial on my WhatsApp as well. <laughs> and alcohol based questions, I'm like, how much is too much? And he's like, knowing you, probably too much. Um, but, re- you know, just having red wine instead of white wine yeah. for the polyphenols. Um, and yeah, as Alana said, not having 20 vodkas. <laughs> and then we have like kombucha with our gin. Lovely. Um, and yeah, and then like, you know, vodka sodas. So we're not having like WKDs full of sugar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was behaviour as well. I think probably for coming with a bit, you know, getting a bit older as well. I think as well, like, I think before if we were stressed or anxious, we would reach for the wine. And now, you know, we've started, well, we've got Peloton bikes, so we're on them quite a lot. But things like that, just, like, swap, simple swaps of, um, yeah. you know, when you, when you want to reach for that glass of red, maybe just saying, now I'll have a couple of nights off it. Yeah, no, that's really good advice, and I think it's all about not shaming it, not demonising it, but just finding, finding that balance. But as well, that go back to the science, like, Gautam's like, you know, it's he's a, so gut permeability, uh, is increased after about six units and um, so it's like kind of knowing that you're like and that's he's done a lot of research in dry january and stuff like that and he was like that's um, interesting wow. he was like he's basically like every january is like his busiest thing because all journalists are like tell us is it actually going to work for us and actually he's so balanced about it as well and i think the science gives you the ability to be balanced mm. about it mm-hmm. you're not 
coming from it from a really binary perspective. So it's not like this is good, this is bad, and like demonising yeah. stuff. Totally. Yeah. Nuance is so key, and I think both our platforms get across that, and it's important to keep doing that so that people don't feel restricted and disempowered and kind of shame ashamed of their previous habits. You know, it's yeah. all about a journey, and like you say, simple swaps, still eating and doing the things that you love, but in a more kind of yeah modified way. Um, so on to the really exciting stuff. Can you tell us a little bit about your life as DJs? Um, you started mentioning that it was a lot of late nights, lots of travel, but could you just tell us about, you know, some of the exciting things that came out of it and um, just about how you feel, maybe like you messages you'd like to tell your 20 something year old self? Yeah, I mean, we, when we turned 30 last year or the year before, I was like to my pals, do you think I did everything in my 20s? They were like, yes, like you did. Well, we started off on radio, so we were on one extra back when we were cool. And then we moved to Saturday nights at Virgin. So we, and we worked hard, you know, we didn't get, we got one show off a year. Wow. Uh, every Saturday night, we missed birthdays, weddings. We were on tour, we did the Love Island tour. Someday, when we took over Old Street Station, we were... We had four tour dates that week, and we'd go to Old Street and be there seven till seven. Get on a flight, go on stage at one a.m., sleep over oh. in a, a hotel, and be back in Old Street for seven a.m. the next morning. It was like you know, and everyone saw you know it was mm. amazing. And we kept, we basically said we want to play Wembley, we want to play, uh, we want to DJ on telly, which hadn't really been done before, and we want to play Hugmanay because it's 80,000 people and it's our home crowd and then you know we ticked all of that stuff off we wanted a primetime radio show we got that you know we did all of that stuff mm. but our bodies were yeah trying to do both things was, do you think was you that. kind of had that I'll sleep when I'm dead kind of attitude which you Definitely. know so many yeah. like I've had that in the early like you know I'm 24 now I had like when I was 20 21 it was literally just go 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 and then I saw I got anxiety and I had let restless lights and it just I saw it catching up with me yeah as well. you know and we had to really you know we always I just I think we drive each other, but it was just like succeed, succeed. We just pushed mm, each other mm. so hard. And we still do. We just do it in a different way with the gut stuff. And, you know, it's just like, when, when, when? We've got to do everything. And then we've got to make our mum proud. And yeah. we've got to make, you know, we've got to make our family proud. And, you know, we probably, everyone used to look at us and go, how are you doing it? How are you doing it? I think we both kept each other going. But, you know, when all our friends were buying houses in their late 20s, we were just like, there's no way we can do this. Like, we just didn't. I lived on Lisa's living room sofa for two years when we first started DJing, and um, you know, even then, it was just like not six having a salad night bus home. So everyone, like, we used to literally six hour sets, and we had to mix every thirty seconds for six hours, and then we couldn't afford a cab home, so we'd get on the night bus home. And every, okay. we needed at Liam Gallagher, Liam Gallagher's fortieth, DJ. <laughs> a club called Whiskey Mist. And um, yeah, we literally got on the night bus home after that. <laughs> bye, bye, bye. Oh yeah. my gosh, wow. But it was, Good, you know, we were yeah. back at those times and I'm like, you know, we DJ still, so we did two gigs a month. Yeah. Uh, we just had to like, you know, put a number on it so that, um, so to stop our, you know, stop us, our agents like, look, how many do you want to do? And you know, if someone had told us five years ago when we were getting on the night bus home, or eight years ago, we get on the night bus home. One day, you'll be able to choose what gigs you do and what 
don't and you were putting a cap on it, we would have been like, you know, it's it's amazing. But yeah, now basically, can we bring our pals and be in bed by 12? <laughs> That's a prerequisite. <laughs> I think, well, like doing Love Island, you know, we really, we wanted to make a difference when we did that show in terms of thinking about that audience. You know, that audience, you know, did think about the sort of outside what you look on the outside and we were like if we can change that audience perception of thinking about the inside out um then you know we've done we've done a good job that's amazing so how have you actually done that with love island because it obviously is a show i watch it a lot of medics watch it medics have been on it um you know it's just good old entertainment at the end of the day but how how have you managed to filter that message of inside out have you managed to kind of align gut stuff and love island a bit or yeah i think you don't you just i think the gut stuff in general as a brand speaks in a very pop culture way Mm. and i think that's natural because that's the way we talk about stuff and actually as a kind of health and well-being brand we always say you're not competing against other health and well-being brands you're competing against nike and spotify and thinking because what you're competing against is people's you're trying to get their attention and you want to try and get their attention something that is important and it's going to change their lives um, I think, well, I think, you know, we went into unis and schools a couple of years ago and, and spoke a lot about gut health and we would go in and they'd be like, love Island DJs, wah! And then we'd go in and talk about poo. And um, I think they were much more willing um, to hear what we had to say because of that. And if that was our way in, that was our way in. And, you know, we're delighted that it's got us to where we are today. Completely. I think it's such a unique way to kind of engage people. You've already got that kind of high profile people love you on tv and then you're talking to them about their health which is completely (laughs) almost sometimes counterintuitive um so it's really cool and so can you tell us a little bit about who your favorite contestants were on the show and whether yeah you're friendly with dr alex i know he's been doing a lot He's doing a lot at the moment with COVID and watching his TikTok. So the last time we saw Alex, was it last time? Basically, we had a gig up the Shard, um, and it was us and Vernon Kay, and Alex turned up with his pals, and our pals and Alex, they were all, they were in my car green room, which was a kitchen, (laughs) and yeah, so much fun, but he turned up and Katie tried to MC on the mic. I was like, Alex. Not happening. My friend. No, it was actually fine as well. And then we did it. We played House of Van. We played House of Vans. Oh, yeah, it's there as well. There as well. We've, and, we've, not, we've not done the show now since 2018. Was yeah. Our last season. Yeah. But it seems like ages ago now, actually. But yeah, all the contestants that, you know, Adam. Remember Adam from the third series? Was it third series? Or was that Kim in that year? Yeah, four or five. It was our first well, time. when Adam came out, everyone totally vilified him. And he was the nicest boy. Mm. Like, he is such a good dick. And it's just funny about people's perceptions because people treat the contestants like characters. Mm. So it's like a small character. When people walk on the streets, that character, no, no, they are in fact a human. Um, you know, it's like that's... Uh, but yeah, you know, it, to be part of the TV show that was... You know, it was it would be a massive part of our generation, um, and you know it was so fun. We did like we did like two a tour after we did Love Island Live, where it was like how many thirty thousand people or something like that. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. I can't even imagine the fun, like, <laughs> literally. Yeah, but we, on, they're all, like, 19, 20, and they're like, where's the after party? I'm like, in bed with a chamomile tea, my friends. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you know Eyal? Yeah. Yeah, because he, he's, he, like, grew up in the same, yeah, he's year above and you grew up in, like, the same neighbourhood in, like, northwest London, so, like, a lot of my friends were, like, friendly with him growing up, like, used to see him around and stuff, and... Yeah, also done so well from the show. Lovely guy, yeah. yeah his, brothers, he's got, his brothers as well are really fit, aren't they? I remember when they came out of the streets. Hello. Yeah, yeah one of his brothers is the founder. you know Canna Water? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's one of his brothers' sprags. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Fun, Fun fact. Um, but yeah, no, it sounds like you've done a whole 360 and it's so cool that you're able to balance, like you know, all the things that you love as well as really empowering those around you with gut health as well as, you know, yourself. So I think it's, yeah, it's such an extraordinary journey. So guys, it's been amazing hearing your story and just how it all started. Um, everything good happens by accident. And so I just wanted to know your thoughts a little bit about um, how we can make the wellness kind of world more accessible to all demographics just like how you're doing well i think obviously financially you have to you know i see conferences you know like well-being festivals and it's like 120 quid for the day and all that and you're like whoa mm. like you know that's a very small tiny portion um of the population so i think there's a bit about you know let's drive prices down and get more people there because the more people are there you can probably charge less for a ticket so there's a bit of that but i think you've you know demystifying a lot of the stuff that people talk about um i think that you know it's i think just the teaching people that it's not an aspirational thing it should, like i said before it should be inspirational mm-hmm. um, and you know make it a bit more real and not like loads of white backgrounds and <laughs> like i just think the way that we speak about things i mean yes it's fine to have all those aspirational things i think that's cool as well but equally it, that drives the cost of stuff as well because it's you know seen mm-hmm. as something that is yeah unobtainable and that's why people want it but if you're speaking about it in a accessible way like Rudy does that amazingly mm. it's just like speaking about the science in a way that people understand mm-hmm. um i think it's key really exactly yeah no that's brilliant to hear so tell us what your ambitions are for the gut stuff for the next few years i know you've got an exciting book coming out with a chapter written by Rory himself so yeah tell our listeners so the book is you know, we we put off doing a book for ages because we didn't have the time, firstly, but also because we didn't want it to be a 40-quid coffee table book. I wanted it to be something that everyone wanted, so the publisher really got that. So there's 15 scientists uh, and GPs and nutritionists and dietitians from around the world. Actually, it's more like 20 now. Because um, I was like, I want this person, I want this I literally just added another three people at the publisher's level. <laughs> Um, so it's loads of different voices mm-hmm. we've obviously done our voice through it it's really visual um, I just want people to see it right now it doesn't come out until January so <laughs> um, yeah so there's that we have a new product range launching in September um, so all the business side is obviously great and going well the B2B things growing we're just working out what people want and when to give it to them really mm-hmm. the thing that excites us most is just continuing the education stuff like since we've actually been in lockdown 
we've been doing about four press interviews a week, um, which is nuts because it, but it shows you that hopefully the lens is turning um, mm-hmm. to, to, to information that, that people really need. So that's the thing that gets us up in the morning. All the other stuff's, yeah, stressful but cool. <laughs> um, and I think, yeah, in two years' time, I would love to see, you know, doing some amazing work with you guys as well on, you know, where do we put the education and it's going to have as much value and mm-hmm. I think that is definitely 100% into training of junior doctors because they see 8 to 10 patients a day or whatever then that information gets you know it's like how many lives can you change mm-hmm. and, go? and I think that that doesn't just have to be online or on through Instagram we get excited mostly when that's a two way dialogue with other people and um, so yeah that's the thing that kind of yeah because when you're in front of people and you, you're doing a talk you see the light bulb moment um, and you know, people always message us like, "I've tried this and it's really helped me and it's changed." Mm-hmm. And you know, that's what we—that's why we changed careers, really, for all that bit. So hopefully, we're we'll still we're still doing that. Definitely, that's so exciting and so wonderful to actually see all the positive outcomes that your input has, yeah, has basically created. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. And one last question for you both. Um, so you are twins, but I'm wondering whether you have different tastes in food. And I want to know from both of you what your last supper meal would be. So ideal starter, main and dessert. Starter oysters. And that's not, I mean, literally after everything that I've just said about wanky stuff, <laughs> it's only because they're like super, they're like my proper treat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I just love anything that's like super salty or pickled. So that, and then maybe fish and chips for me or macaroni cheese. And then cheese for dessert, 100%. Every time. Cheese. Yeah. Yeah. Cheese like, over like something sweet and sugary. Yeah, not cheese. All Sophisticated day. lady right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think mine would probably be nachos to start. And then, yeah, either mac and cheese or a roast for main course and then cheese all day every day as well for <laughs> and what's your dr- what's your drink of choice tell me about your kombucha co- well you don't have to have it. you've got one day to live you don't have to yeah, have it like red wine with a straw <laughs> yeah. same oh, red wine with a straw yeah oh, that's that's that are like dirty martinis and our other <laughs> again it's salty that's yeah <laughs> oh well, thank you both so much for coming on it's been an absolute pleasure Thanks for having us. So I think we're going to now move on to some lovely sciencey questions with Rory. I'm going to pick his brains. Yeah, <laughs> ready. Rory, so great to have you on the pod as well. I know we've been speaking for quite some time, and I know my co-founder Ian loves um, your cooking as well. He said you did a really lovely bean kind of medley thing on toast the other day. Yeah, he's been asking me for recipes and everything, so I've. Uh... Only glad to oblige. <laughs> I love that. So before we get into the nitty gritties around um, what you're working on at the moment at Queen Mary's, um, we've spoken about how you like the Mac Twins and all other things in life. You came um, to this field kind of by accident, and your main interest was nutrition. So I just wanted you to kind of run through the kind of basics um around gut health for our listeners so um i just wanted to start off by asking you a little bit about common questions we get asked so if you could just start by just 
kind of defining why the gut is so important and when um, this research really started to emerge? Yeah, good question. So I think what a lot of people get lost in is even the terminology of the gut. You know, our, our gut refers to our intestines. And so we have, we're essentially hollow as, as humans because we have a tube that kind of starts in our mouth and, you know, ends out the other side. And so we have this whole kind of piping that goes on for meters and meters, twisting and turning throughout the body. So the gut is usually the kind of lower parts of our intestine. We have our small intestine, our large intestine, as all the medics listening will know. Um, so that's usually what we're referring to when we talk about uh, the gut. Um, and we always knew, I suppose, throughout history that there were microbes living inside the gut, bacteria and viruses and everything. But the general view was that they were harmful, you know, after they were kind of first discovered, they kind of so quickly came to this uh, theory of the germ theory of disease where um, a small little microorganisms that you can't even see are the ones that can cause various uh, various diseases. Um, but then there was various people throughout history who started to kind of contradict that and, and say that actually most of these small little invisible microbes inside of us are actually normal and healthy and, and good for us. Um, but they they kind of tended to be ignored uh, after you know antibiotics were discovered, for example, because antibiotics were brilliant in helping to fight you know really bad infections, um, and yeah, it, it kind of stayed like that for for quite some time up until the kind of mid nineteen nineties, I'd say, mm -hmm. um, with the kind of rapid advances in DNA sequencing technology. So. The big kind of scientific advancement in the 1990s was the Human Genome Project, and that was um, where lots of really great scientists in Cambridge and in the US uh, jointly uh, conducted this project, which took about 10 years, to sequence the entire human genome. So they were kind of reading every single letter of DNA in the human genome. And this was a fascinating and really important development at the time. And so this kind of led the way to this technology, this DNA sequencing technology, to become cheaper and, and more available. So it was then applied to all the kind of microbes in the intestine, because we can now, instead of trying to grow microbes that are living in the intestines to see what's there, which is really hard to do for most of, of the microbes, because, you know, they don't like oxygen, a lot of them don't, or they might require certain nutrients. Instead, now with this kind of technological development, we can instead read their DNA. And that makes it much, much easier to know what microbes are living in a gut or living in any other sort of environment. So that's what led to this huge explosion in what's known as the gut microbiome, this collection of microorganisms living inside our intestines, because we suddenly then figured out that there are thousands of species of, of different microbes living inside of us. And with these kind of advances in technologies, we were able to figure out you know, what genes they had, what they were doing in our gut, how essential they were for breaking down our foods, for, you know, controlling the medicines that are taken into our body, for controlling our immune system. Um, so, yeah, that's how it really took off, kind of in the 1990s, kind of early 2000s. Uh, and since then, you know, we're learning more and more by the day about this huge jungle or collection of microorganisms living inside of us and how important they are for, for our own health. And am I right in saying it's actually been termed as another organ or is it just more of an ecosystem that lives within and relates to all the organs within the organ system? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're looking at it at a very strict classical medical terminology, yeah. it, it isn't an organ. <laughs> but, you know, it's 
maybe fair enough if you're speaking in a kind of um, day-to-day sense that maybe actually it, you could call it a, an organ because it does seem to um, react that way, I suppose, um, because it, it is, you know, has, has its own functions which are so important to the kind of health of the entire organism being us as, as a human. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, so it hasn't just become trendy. It's been going on for quite some time. So um, could you tell us, I know a lot of people get confused between the terms prebiotic and probiotic. Can you just yeah. kind of define them? Yeah, of course. So there's there are two kind of regulated terms for prebiotic and probiotic. I'm probably going to get them wrong now, but I'll try. So probiotic... <laughs> is the defined term, which is even defined by the World Health Organization and everything, is a, um, an organism which, if uh, administered in appropriate amounts, uh, confers a health benefit to the host. So that's the kind of medical terminology, but that really means it is a living bacteria or yeast usually, which, if we take it, has a, a specific health benefit uh, inside of us. So that's a probiotic. It is a, a live... Uh, bacteria or yeast uh, whereas a prebiotic uh, the official term which was only kind of brought out a few years ago is um, I think it's a fiber that selectively uh, stimulates the growth of beneficial microbes as it goes something along those lines so mm-hmm. a, a prebiotic is, is food for uh, the gut bacteria so think of it like fertilizer mm-hmm. and these are they don't have to be fibers but they usually are dietary fiber uh, and there are lots of different types of prebiotics out there, things like inulin, or you might hear things like FOS and GOS, which stand for fructooligosaccharides and galactooligosaccharides. Uh, and these are essentially kind of complex carbohydrates in a way. They're, they're fibers which we don't digest ourselves as humans, uh, but instead they work their way down, all the way down through this kind of piping of intestines that we spoke about, all the way to the large intestine. Mm-hmm. Um, right down the end of, of our bodies uh, and there they're kind of broken down by our gut bacteria and the the kind of products that are created uh, after they're broken down then be uh, digested into our body mm-hmm. so drawing on that the mac twins mentioned that whenever they're talking to people as an initial stage to get people interested in gut health it's fiber 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 so you've mentioned about you know the different diverse types of fiber from inulin to FOS. So tell us actually why it's beneficial for people to include more dietary fibre. I know it has a little bit of an interaction with the immune system, but I'm not the scientist here. <laughs> it's all right. Uh, I mean, I could go on for hours about why it's so important, but it really is, as I mentioned, the kind of neglected nutrient. In, mm. in, a kind of, in a strict sense, it's not a nutrient because we don't digest it ourselves, but... Um, we can't view it that way. We have to view it as essential. So people are always, there's all these big wars in nutrition about protein and carbohydrates and fat, you know, which ones we should be eating more of and less of it. And this has led to fiber being completely neglected over the years. Um, it is so important for our body fiber because uh, it is broken down by our microbes to create uh, so many important chemicals, I suppose, for our body. Um, and it also feeds this community of microorganisms, the microbiome. So it has kind of dual functions in itself. Um, so, for example, I can start off, it, it can be broken down by a gut bacteria to create compounds which strengthen our intestinal barrier, for example. Mm-hmm. So it's really important that we have a kind of 
imagine a barrier that selectively allows nutrients to pass through into our bloodstream, but doesn't allow you know, infectious organisms to pass through so we don't get sick. So it's really important that that is a kind of very strong barrier that only allows the things we want to pass through. Uh, through. So fiber, when it's broken down, creates chemicals which help strengthen that, that barrier right there, which is really important for our health. Um, what else does it do? It, it can create uh, chemicals which can actually uh, make us feel full. We can, can control our satiety hormones. So these hormones, such as um, leptin, which makes us hungry, and some of these other kind of satiety hormones, are, I suppose, really important for things like weight gain because, mm-hmm. you know, these hormones are controlling our, I suppose, our instincts of, of whether we want to eat or not. Um, it also creates fiber when it's broken down by our gut bacteria, creates compounds which help to kind of communicate and strengthen our immune system as well. So um, as the girls mentioned earlier on, about a rough figure is 70% of our immune cells are lo- located in the gut. And although we kind of didn't know this before, it makes sense because the gut is the main entry point into our body. You know, we have mm-hmm. our airways, I guess, but not a lot of stuff will, will get in through our lungs. Um, but loads of stuff is passing every day down through our gut, even just our saliva every time we swallow, every time we drink water or eat food or take medicines. Um, this is the main kind of entry point into our body. So the immune system needs to be there to attack off the things that it doesn't want to, to come into the body or to allow the things it does. So when fiber is broken down, it can create all these different compounds which help strengthen this immune response and, and help to kind of uh, turn on that immune response if there is an infection there or to dampen it down uh, if we want you know certain things to be passing into the body well no that was uh, you should teach the medical students a very in-depth <laughs> explanation around it and i think it's so useful to actually hear how a component in your diet can have such a pr- profound effect on all your systems and so i think the key is obviously getting more people to eat more fiber so if we were to do that, what kind of foods would you advise? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fruit and vegetables. It's the boring kind of nutrition advice in the end. But yeah. um, the, there are some that kind of contain more of these prebiotic fibers. So we use the word fiber, but really there are loads and loads of different types of fibers. So they're, they're all just carbohydrates of different shapes and structures if you break them down chemically. And so each different fruit and vegetable will have lots of different types of, of fibers in them. So even just basic things like bananas and apples, onions and garlic are really kind of high in, in fiber. And um, raspberries, avocados, it's really important to get that uh, kind of diversity of, of, um, of vegetables uh, and, and fruit into your diet to kind of get all these different types of fiber. There are some standout um, vegetables and plant-based foods which apparently have way more prebiotics in them than Bruce others. Bruce Lamartichoke. Bruce Lamartichoke, <laughs> exactly. But, you know, I mean, I'm going to be honest, I study nutrition. I don't know the difference between an artichoke and a Jerusalem yeah. artichoke. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not, you don't have to be going eating Jerusalem artichoke every mm. breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you know. As that long makes as you're it too wine. tricky, I think. It kind of, yeah, in terms of accessibility. Mm. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And it's this kind of, as we spoke about the privilege thing as well, you know, if, if you're kind of well off and, and you know a lot about science and nutrition and you have a, a green grocer down the road with an organic, you know, supplier of a farm, you might be able to get, you know, Jerusalem artichoke. But if all you have access to is the local Tesco or Asda down the road, you know, you're, it's going to be quite hard to get these things. So that's why it's not important to dwell on things like Jerusalem artichoke, 
or you know fennel or, or some of these other things that are really high in fiber because the basic things that we can all buy bananas apples onions garlic all have re- a lot of fiber in them as well and so the most important message is that we get a diversity of, of vegetables and fruits into our diet you know a lot of people that i would have been friends with in school even i was probably guilty of it they want to be really healthy and kind of go to the gym and do a lot of exercise but they thought that, and probably me as well, thought that if you have your chicken and broccoli every day for dinner, you know, you get your protein, you get your vegetable in. But really what we need is a variety of different foods because, yeah. you know, we're, we're, our, our bodies aren't intended to just maintain themselves on, on one type of vegetable or, or one food source. Absolutely. Diversity and different colours completely. And so fiber kind of comes into the realm of prebiotics. So we've kind of discussed like the useful things to feed the bacteria. So what are some useful probiotic sources? So, yeah, this, this is the issue with probiotics. Um, that they technically, by their definition, are not present in food. So you, you wouldn't say that um, your yogurt uh, contained probiotic unless a certain bacteria has been added to that. Because by definition... A probiotic is only a probiotic if it has shown to have a specific health benefit in a human. So fermented foods are, are commonly, you know, touted as having lots of probiotics in them, which technically isn't true. They have lots of microbes in them, which are probably healthy for you, but a probiotic is usually added specifically into a food or is taken as a as a substance. So that's just to kind of get the terminology that right, I think is important because now some regulatory bodies including mm-hmm. the european food safety authority have actually prevented all people from use all companies from using the word probiotic on their foods um, and that's because many people were adding in any bacteria into their food and claiming it was probiotic when they really didn't have that evidence that it had a health benefit so there technically isn't any kind of natural food that has probiotic in but there are plenty of good foods that have healthy microbes in which probably will have a health benefit. They haven't been kind of studied in detail yet. So that would mainly be fermented foods. Um, and that would be, you know, natural yogurt is a really good source of healthy microbes. Uh, and these would be things like lactobacilli and streptococcus, mm-hmm. which can be really good for your gut. Uh, cheese, if it's unpasteurized, uh, usually has a lot of um, good microbes in as well, because the pasteurization process will, will kill off a lot of those, those good bugs. Um, and some of these other fermented foods that the girls spoke about, so kefir and sauerkraut, mm. um, and what else? Yeah, kefir and sauerkraut, kimchi, uh, all of these kind of yeah. fancy fermented foods that you've heard of contain a lot of healthy bacteria. So with things like kombucha, because that's become such a trendy thing, Yeah. is there kind of a lack of evidence to really show any benefits? Has it kind of propelled itself before it's kind of got the evidence basis behind it definitely yeah i mean that's not to say that it's not potentially good for you and that is the, the problem as a scientist you have to always um unfortunately pull back on a lot of the claims that have been made by food sure. so i would say kombucha yeah probably is good for you but there isn't evidence that it has all these magical um you know health health effects yet mainly because natural kombucha, depending on who you or where you get it from or whether you've made your own, will have completely different bacteria in it. Your one might compare it to your neighbor who's made it down the road. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to say that kombucha itself is really good for you because one kombucha could be so different to the other. 
Uh, and also, you know, someone might respond differently to kombucha. Some people might find actually, you know, they get a bit gassy if they have it, whereas other people find it's really good for their gut. Mm. In general, because it contains a lot of these good bacteria uh, and yeasts inside of it, it probably is uh, a good source of, yeah, micro. it is a good source of microbes and in general will be a good kind of gut-friendly food. Mm. Um, but yeah, you're right, there, there hasn't been any you know, rigorous studies about kombucha to say, mm. if you drink one glass of kombucha every day, you will have, you know, less IBS or, mm. you know, less bloating or whatever. And is that the same with kefir, would you say? Yeah, I mean, there, there's slowly more evidence coming around with, with kefir yeah. as well. And people that I've worked with back in Ireland are trying to do this. They're, I mean, I don't think it's a big problem that people like the gut stuff and, and me are saying eat more fermented foods because... The common sense is they contain all these good microbes, therefore they probably are good for your gut. Um, but yeah, there isn't hardcore scientific evidence there, although it is slowly coming out um, that kefir can you know, add some of these good microbes into your gut, which might have good uh, outcomes for things like IBS or other kind of gut problems that people, people might have. Sure. And... Just out of curiosity, is there an issue with some kombuchas when they actually do pasteurise it, when you don't have the, like, bacteria in it? You know you know what I mean, like, when you're tasting it, you can sometimes see when there's bacteria and then other brands I've had, it's just too smooth. So by pasteurising it, are you actually just essentially getting rid of the bacteria? You are, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's no good anymore. Um, yeah. Because if you eat any fermented food, a lot of the live organisms in it are going to be killed by your stomach acid okay. um, or, you know, things like yogurt is sometimes pasteurized or like you're talking about kombucha and kefir can sometimes be pasteurized because, you know, if you're a food company, you have to be careful and it, it's, you have to be careful mm-hmm. you're not adding in a, or accidentally growing a bad bacteria in there. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not, it's useless, uh, it's kind of no good anymore because during the fermentation process, these microbes have kind of broken down things like lactose and other sugars that are, are in the drink uh, to create some of these compounds, just as they do in, in the gut, just like when they break down fiber. And so it's some of these other um, chemicals that are in kefir and kombucha, which, will, which are, aren't mm-hmm. alive, which can still make it into your gut and still have some of these uh, beneficial effects. So there's interesting studies, even about probiotics themselves, that certain probiotics, mm-hmm. if you want to call them that, can still have beneficial effects even if they have been pasteurized themselves um, or if, if they've been killed beforehand because they might have a certain sugar, for example, on their outer coating, which mm. has that beneficial effect in, in your gut. That's so brilliant to hear because I've heard such a diverse range of opinions, Ari, pasteurized kombucha versus not pasteurized kombucha because obviously from a safety perspective like with pregnant women for instance you've got to think about are there harmful bacteria in there should i be careful with the marketing is it regulated yeah um, but... I, I, I remember listening to a really interesting presentation last year um of someone when i was living out in vancouver who was studying all different uh, types of kombucha on the market in, in the vancouver area wow and they found that all the kombucha they tested uh, on, on the market supermarket shelves had a range of about 2 to 5% alcohol in them, some of them did. So imagine you're a pregnant woman and you're drinking kombucha every day and having all that alcohol. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, yeah, you kind of have to be careful if you're a food supplier and, and sometimes pasteurization is important. You, know, you, you might kill everything in there, but we, you have to do kind of rigorous studies on your um, 
product in order to know exactly what kind of health benefits it may have. Sure. And so on to uh, pro before we talk about your research, I know we get other frequently asked questions like probiotic supplements and things like that. How strong is the evidence out there for kind of the use of probiotic supplements when you've had a long course of antibiotics, for instance? I know we sometimes learn about it when we talk about um, Clostridium difficile. So what does the evidence actually show and how do you kind of, you know, navigate how many are on the markets? It's so complicated. There's so many different supplements around probiotics. Yeah, probiotics are very controversial, um, mainly because people like think that all probiotics are the same. But as I kind of said earlier with this definition, each probiotic by definition is different. You know, it has to have a specific health benefit. So in terms of anti uh, taking antibiotics, there is good evidence that taking certain types of probiotics um, can significantly reduce antibiotic associated diarrhea and that's when you take probiotics during your antibiotic uh, treatment and afterwards for two to four weeks that is that is very good evidence and um, so it would be recommended but yeah you're right it is hard to try and navigate that and um, because you don't have as many good studies on probiotics as you do on medicines on the market uh, it's it's hard to define whether they're a food or a or a medicine um, so there is good, good evidence for other, other certain probiotics. There's a very good probiotic which was discovered in Ireland and is now on the market, which is really good at reducing symptoms of IBS. Mm -hmm. So things like bloating and, um, and some of these other, other symptoms. Uh, and there's certain probiotics which can reduce the incidence of necrotizing enterocolitis, which is a really That's what I was going to bring up. I did a paper on it this year for my kids. Yeah, I did it on neck and um, yeah, neck incidents and intake of probiotics. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, so they're, they're kind of, the evidence is good for, for neck mm -hmm. and for IBS and for antibiotic-associated diarrhea and for traveler's diarrhea. There's some very good evidence as well. So if you, you know, we, a lot of us might have experienced it if you've gone abroad to somewhere, a kind of setting that you haven't been before, you know, maybe somewhere in South America or Southeast Asia or India, and you're suddenly in this new environment and you kind of have a bit of kind of traveler-associated development. Mm -hmm. So there's certain probiotics which are, are uh, shown to be very good at reducing that um, burden, I suppose, of, of traveler's diarrhea. And all the other evidence for probiotics isn't strong enough to recommend them in, in certain disease states. So that, you have to be careful when I say that, because that doesn't mean the probiotics don't work for a certain disease mm. state. There isn't large studies to say that a certain probiotic can, you know, reduce cholesterol or, or whatever it is you're, you're saying, because each, there's so many different types of bacteria in the world mm. and so many different types of species of organisms that each one can, can have a different uh, effect. Sure. And so, Away from disease states, speaking about the everyday person, some people get into the trap of thinking they need a probiotic supplement. Can you just say that you should try and aim to get all that kind of gut friendly, uh, all the gut friendly nutrients from a well balanced whole food diet that the supplement isn't necessary because there isn't strong enough evidence and there's so much variety between each supplement that is on the market? Yeah, you're completely right. I mean, it's natural that we all want a kind of magic pill that mm. will cure all our problems, but it's just not going to work. If you're if you're young and healthy, you know, if you don't have any sort of chronic condition and you're, you know, between the ages of, 
I don't know, 12 and probably 70, you, you, and you're healthy, you, you don't need a probiotic. You know, probiotics are there to, to help the, the symptoms of specific disease states. So there's no need for us to be taking them every day. And mm-hmm. um, it'll just kind of burn a hole in your, in your pocket. And um, so the kind of advice would be if you're looking to, you know, make yourself healthy and, and maintain kind of well-being, uh, the best thing to do is to focus on your diet and your lifestyle. So that mm-hmm. would just be the normal things you'd hear is kind of getting some 30 minutes of exercise five times a week. And as we spoke about trying to get a varied diet, and that can be quite hard to do if you have had a limited diet before. So what you should try and aim to do is just slowly increase your intake of plant-based foods um, every day or every week. So the kind of big goal is to try and get 30 different types of plant-based foods in your diet each week, which Mm -hmm. sounds daunting. Um, But you can easily get, you know, 10 in a day between Mm -hmm. your your three different meals. Yeah, I remember... Yeah, I remember hearing Tim Spector say exactly that 30 and um, everyone was so alarmed by it. But if you think about the dried herbs, the spices, everything exactly. that is plant-based that you're using to assemble your meal, you can exactly. do it. Mm. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, add a bit of spice in, some herbs, and like lemon juice or olive oil. Yeah. In one meal, you can, you can fit in loads. So if you think about between a week and you have, say, on average 21 meals in a week, yeah, that's only, you know, just over one or one or two different types of plant-based foods in, in each meal. So once you break it down, it's it's not too bad. But you don't need to jump. If you find that you want to kind of improve your diet a bit and you haven't been eating a good diet, don't suddenly the next day kind yeah. of buy every vegetable in the world and create, you know, big meals out of it. Because, of course, then your stomach won't be, or your, your gut won't be used to that. Mm-hmm. And you'll kind of probably get symptoms of IBS. So you need to kind of slowly increase, uh, kind of bring these things into your diet and make them a more sustainable change. Yeah, that's something that a lot of friends and family um, always ask me, and I don't have the answer, of course. When they start going a bit more plant-based, why is it that you get increased flatulence and, in layman's terms, you fart more? <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's like anything. It's Your your gut microbes aren't used to it, I suppose. So you, if you've had a kind of fairly narrow, limited diet beforehand, you have certain species of microbes in your gut which are used to breaking down fats, let's say, from meat or from oily foods. So if you suddenly, you know, give your give all of them, you know, 20 different types of plant foods, they're not used to, to kind of breaking these down themselves. And so they start producing gases, which kind of leads to the, um, the bloating or flatulence mm. or these other symptoms. That's why, you know, just like we need to kind of get used to things as humans, you need to give your gut microbes a chance to get used to different foods as well by slowly introducing them, uh, uh, like couple at a time every couple of days and this will allow your gut microbiome to slowly change and some of these more healthy microbes will begin to flourish and grow and they'll begin to overtake some of these less healthy microbes for example which won't produce all these gases for example and, and it won't lead you to getting some of those symptoms of IBS. Sure yeah I think it's just when people maybe go at it too extremely it's about that like you mentioned the gradual swapping in and out and like yeah. what Alan Orlis was saying, if you're making a lasagna, like make half with lentils or, you know, another plant-based thing and rather than going crazy with it all. So Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's easy easy wins you can get like that, as they said, kind of slowly at a time switch, sure. switching so I want you to please tell our audience about the research that you're currently doing at Queen Mary's and how you got into it. Yeah, so I 
studied the, the kind of microbiome during part of my PhD and how early life nutrition, so a mother's diet or a kind of infant's diet very early in life, affect our kind of microbiome at the very early stages of life. Mm-hmm. And I always had had an interest in malnutrition as well, kind of undernutrition um, in the developing world. So I kind of applied that to my current position. Um, so what we do is look at how the gut microbiome develops in young babies and young children in the early phases of life and how that affects their growth. So it, it isn't necessarily just related to kids who might be undernourished. It's very relevant to kids in the UK as well because um, those first two years of life are, are most important for defining our health you know, for the rest of our life. So we have this... Uh, period i suppose of nine months when a baby is developing in in the womb in the mother uh, and then it's kind of suddenly brought into this world where it's suddenly exposed to all these microbes so if you think about that we we don't have a complex microbiome in the in the womb and suddenly we come out into this world we're exposed to all these different organisms which our immune system has to handle and so if we're exposed to the wrong organisms or if we're exposed to an environment which doesn't support the growth of the right uh, microbes for example if we're not exclusively breastfed for very long or if we're exposed to a kind of unhygienic environment then that can kind of mess up the normal development of this microbial organ mm-hmm. and if that microbial organ doesn't develop very well then our immune system doesn't train itself very well because it, it learns to kind of um react to some of these more disease-causing organisms. And so that can actually lead to a kind of disturbed immune system for later on in life, which may even impact our you know, weight gain later on or mm. our risk of asthma or allergies or maybe even some other more serious chronic uh, diseases later on in life. So that's what we study, how, how exactly the, the microbes grow in those very early periods of life and how that affects uh, a baby and a child's uh, growth and development um, during mm. that period. And is that, you refer to this piece of research, is that the first 1,000 Days project? Yeah, yeah. So we, we wrote a kind of review on that based around some of the work that we're, mm. we're doing at the moment. So we study kids in Zimbabwe and Zambia um, who are chronically undernourished. They, they don't grow as tall as they should. Or, or those who are kind of severely malnourished, who are kind of really wasted or kind of losing a lot of their muscle and fat. And we have following their mothers during when they're pregnant and following these kids up in the first two years of life as well. And we collect their stool samples at lots of different points during this period and, and look at how their the gut microbiome develops in the healthy kids who are growing mm-hmm. fine and in the kids who aren't growing uh, very well as well. So that's all around what's known as the first thousand days, as you say. And this is the, the period of being in the womb and the first two years of life. If you add up those nine months and those first two years, you get about a thousand days. And that is a really, really important period, as I said, for defining how a baby's health will be for the rest of his life or her life. Um, Because, you know, as I said, these are the the periods when the the baby is growing physically, their immune system is developing, their, you know, endocrine system and their hormones are all, you know, learning and, and beginning to develop as well. So, we study how the gut microbiome affects all of these different pathways. Mm. I find it absolutely fascinating. And whenever I've had the chance at med school to do um, a bit of research for whatever specialty block I've on, I've always tried to do something with the microbiome. So 
on my peas block this year i mentioned i looked at neck incidents and probiotic usage and then um on my obs and gyne block which i was two thousand of the way through before covid kicked in i did my presentation on vaginal seeding so um for our listeners who don't know what that is, that's when um, babies who are delivered via C-section are basically given um, their mother's vaginal um, fluids in a kind of swab form around their face to kind of what's thought to increase the diversity of their microbes because they've not been delivered vaginally. So, um, yeah, the evidence wasn't very good for it, <laughs> from what I found, um, which is interesting because, you know, it was a midwife who actually mentioned it to me in the first place, and women are actually asking for it to happen. They, obviously, it's every, every mother's choice. Um, they sometimes ask the midwife to do it, and the midwife, of course, abides. So, um, yeah, I wanted to see a little bit what your views were on it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So as you said, you're right. The, the evidence isn't good. That doesn't necessarily say the evidence um, that it doesn't work. Yeah. The evidence isn't there yet. Uh, like I said, COVID, for example, we don't, we don't know what, how mm. COVID happens or what the treatments are. That doesn't mean that something is right or wrong. We just, the evidence hasn't been done yet. There is a small study in about five women where they took children who were born by a C-section and performed this vaginal seeding, where they took a swab from, the, from a mother's vagina and uh, swabbed it on the baby. Um, and this is because a baby born by C-section usually has a different microbiome in this early phase of life compared to someone who a baby is born by a standard delivery. So what this study showed was that the vaginal seeding did work in terms of making the baby's gut microbiome look more similar to that that was born by a standard vaginal delivery. And that is expected. If you take a swab from the mother's vagina and you know, rub it on the baby, of course, you know, it's, it's going to look like it has been born by vaginal uh, delivery. What we don't know, though, is whether that actually affects the baby's health later on. That's what the evidence isn't there for. Um, the baby, you know, other factors of having a C-section delivery may play a role. You know, mm-hmm. there's other kind of stress factors. The mother is given antibiotics, for example. Other things might might play uh, play a role in that. So it's interesting, um, yeah. but we don't know whether it actually works right now. Yeah, I mean, it was hypothesised that the reason why a baby who's delivered by C-section um, has kind of an increased rate of autoimmune conditions is because of the gut dysbiosis compared to um, a baby born vaginally. But then again, of course, you just don't know that for a fact. Um, and that kind of brings me on to asking you a bit more about the different factors and um, kind of contributions you've found through your work with your um, research in Zimbabwe and Zambia. So we've discussed uh, delivery, um, modes of delivery and how that can impact the microbiome. What else have you kind of discovered within those 1000 days that factor in changing the kind of, you know, gut um, composition? Yeah, well, there's... A few different key factors. So mode of delivery, as we talk about, is really important in defining what your gut microbiome looks like in early life. That's one of the strongest factors. Mm-hmm. Um, the diet of a child in, in the first few months of life is really important as well, as you might expect. So kids who are exclusively breastfed uh, for the first six months of life, as is advised, that means the babies are just given breast milk and nothing else, apart from medications if they needed it. 
um, have uh, what seems to be a more healthy microbiome compared to a child who has been introduced to formula or solid foods um, earlier during that six-month period. So, look, of course, mothers can't always breastfeed that whole time, but the kind of generic advice is six months of exclusive breastfeeding, and that seems to support a healthy microbiome. Uh, antibiotic exposure is one of the biggest, I suppose, predictors of changes in, in the microbiome as well. So some really interesting evidence uh, from a lab in New York showed that when a child is exposed to antibiotics lots of times during that first 1,000-day period, they may be more likely to gain weight later on in life. Right. And that's because, as we spoke about, the gut microbiome is developing within those first thousand days. And after you get past that thousand days, at about the age of two years, two or three, the gut microbiome looks very similar in a two or three-year-old as it does to an adult. Right. Because they've been exposed to lots of different foods, they've kind of been exposed to the outside environment now for long enough. So if you disturb that development of the microbiome with antibiotics, which, of course, are really important for killing off infections, but at the same time, there's collateral damage. They kill off lots of the healthy microbes as well. That kind of perturbs or, or destroys the kind of normal development and growth of this uh, microbiome. So that can play a huge role. So that's really it. It's kind of mode of delivery, diet, and antibiotic exposure. The one other thing which is more relevant to kind of low-income settings is hygiene. So we were looking at, in a big study, whether if building latrines in a very kind of rural setting in, uh, in Zimbabwe um, and, you know, providing chlorine for water and, and hand washing stations, if that could kind of help the, the development of the microbiome. Um, interestingly, it didn't seem to have a, a huge effect, but I think that's because it wasn't a good enough intervention. You know, really, we all need around the world piped water, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, in certain settings, it could be fluoridized water and, and kind of a separation of sewage systems. But... That's kind of a, a bit off the matter, but yeah, mm -hmm. hygiene is, is important as well. And yeah, I was reading about, or I had a lecture, I don't remember, about the hygiene hypothesis, um, thinking about reasons for atopic children. So mm -hmm. children who are at greater risk of developing asthma, hay fever, um, and eczema. So you hear all these things about mothers thinking like the world about letting their kids play in the soil and play in the dirt because it's good for their immune system. And then, you know, you have mothers who are way more kind of neurotic about germs and germphobes. So I don't know if there's anything you can tell us about the research around this and whether it does have an impact on these kind of atopic conditions, you know, talking about the kind of environment kids are brought up in, whether it's, I remember reading a study about kids brought up in urban settings versus farm settings. Um, with the soil kind of microbes that they're mixing with. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting area of research, and you're right. Um, the hygiene hypothesis would be that if you're exposed to more microbes, you're actually less prone to, um, let's say, infectious disease or auto-inflammatory conditions because your immune system, I suppose, has been trained in a way to mm. learn about these, these microbes. So, yes, there is good evidence there. At the moment, it's all what's known as observational evidence. So what we know is that kids, for example, who grow up on a farm, as you say, are less likely to have allergies or asthma or some of these autoimmune conditions compared to a child who's been brought up in, the, in a city center. So that's an interesting association, but we don't know is it actually true because the kids who are growing up on a farm might have you know, a better diet, they might kind of 
has a kind of better lifestyle rather than someone who's grown up in maybe a, a kind of downtown city centre somewhere. Sure. So there hasn't been a, what's known as an intervention study where, you know, half the kids are purposely sent to grow up in a farm and the half kids are, are sent to grow up in the city because you can't really, uh, mm. can't really do that in a long-term study to <laughs> mothers and babies. Too much separation. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. But there is, there is evidence there. I think it is grounded on some, you know, general kind of good facts in that if we are exposed to lots of different types of microbes, for example, by growing up on a farm or by playing in the dirt or by having a, a pet as well, um, we, we let our immune systems learn and, and get to know these other organisms mm-hmm. rather than if we grow up in a hyper-sanitized environment where we're exposed to lots of antibiotics and we've got, you know, antibiotic hand cleaners everywhere and washing everything day and that's not great. Like everything, there has to be some balance. I'd say, do let your kid play out in the garden, in the grass, in those early periods of life. It is important to mm. kind of do that. But at the same time, you know, maybe don't let your kid crawl on the pavement where a dog might have, you know, yeah. made, made a mess as well. So Absolutely. Um, Bit of balance. Yeah. yeah. So how do we go about balancing the need for antibiotics for, you know, children with life-threatening sepsis or other infections or... You know, even just kind of, you know, remedial infections that um, kids can get and require antibiotics, ear infections, whatnot. How do you balance that um, with kind of making sure they have a thriving gut microbiome, especially if, you know, the kind of evidence with probiotic um, supplementation after antibiotics is sometimes not there? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, I think what's interesting for, for you guys is that a lot of the time it has to come from a doctor. You know, a, a patient doesn't want to waste their time by kind of queuing up for a GP and booking a, an appointment and going in and get nothing out of it. You know, they'll always want a, a prescription for an antibiotic. But it's really, really important that medics and also the general public know that the concept of um, antimicrobial resistance is mm-hmm. going to be an even bigger public health issue than coronavirus in, in years to go. It's, it's going to be the, the biggest public health issue of our time. So, yes, but there also has to be balance. So we have to make sure we don't take antibiotics when it's unnecessary. So if there's a, you know, if you have a cold or a flu, antibiotics don't work because they're caused by viruses and antibiotics don't work against viruses. Um, so a doctors have to be good in, in kind of leading that. If a patient comes in and they're kind of demanding a, an antibiotic for uh, a cold or a flu, the doctors have to be good at saying, well, look, it actually won't work for you and you need to do X, Y, and Z instead. But we also need to know that as a, as a general public as well. It is hard when you're working with a kid who, you know, might get a, an infection for whatever reason. Of course, you have to be very careful in, you know, making sure that kid doesn't become septic, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's just that we've kind of gone too far past it. Kids pick up infections most of the time, which are fine during those first phases of life. Mm. And after a day or two, they they get through them. It's fine. So as long as the child is monitored and they're fine for a day, look, I'm not the medic. I don't be giving any medical advice. Maybe you can kind of recommend this. And we don't necessarily always have to jump straight to an antibiotic all the time. It's a broad spectrum antibiotics that might have have harm for the the microbiome. But of course, if that infection starts to look bad after a while, then of course, it's better to be safe than sorry. No, taking an antibiotic and preventing a child from becoming septic is more important than worrying about their, their microbiome later on. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, we do have a fortune of lectures in across all years in different specialties about 
um, safely prescribing antibiotics and issues of microbial resistance and we even do it in consultation skills or a neurotic mother comes in demanding antibiotics how do you deal with the situation so it is super important but then yeah it's just a massive balance because you know sometimes that infection can develop as they leave the door and you just don't even know yeah um, it's hard to find that balance. Mm-hmm. i don't think i can do it it's very hard to to try and you know balance that a little bit but antibiotics in a lot of cases again i'm not getting advice i'm not a clinician but in adults anyway they generally if it's just a standard infection might reduce your symptoms say it's diarrhea or whatever by let's say a day compared mm-hmm. to letting the infection pass mm-hmm. and of course i'm not saying this for serious infections for, for a normal mm-hmm. standard something that you've picked up so it might improve your symptoms for a day but the kind of long-term implications of that might be much worse than uh than letting it pass sure and i wanted to ask you since we're in the situation right now with covid have there been any lessons learned or kind of new ideas that have come to the surface in the realm of gut health and covid yeah there there is evidence there is some evidence there but again it's not extremely strong only because covid is so new mm. there's been a couple of big studies published that shows there are certain um profiles of the gut microbiome which may lead to someone becoming more um under the burden of covid they might kind of develop severe um pneumonia for example and so therefore that suggests that certain gut microbes might play a role in whether you kind of get a serious illness if you're infected with covid um, but again, this is only kind of observational. There's mm-hmm. no evidence yet that certain probiotic, for example, might reduce your um, your kind of risk of getting COVID. There is evidence that certain probiotics may reduce your risk of getting influenza, for example. So it is plausible mm-hmm. that certain probiotics might uh, reduce your kind of risk of, of COVID or might reduce your risk of kind of getting severe pneumonia if you did pick up the infection. But the evidence just isn't there yet. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the problem with science, I suppose. COVID has only been around for, you know, not even six months now. Uh, it, it's really hard to kind of conduct some studies in that time to say, if we target the microbiome, will that improve COVID? Because it just takes a long time to kind of get approval for those studies and to do it. But in general, from what we know from other respiratory infections, mm. you can strengthen your immune system by focusing on your on your gut. So having a healthy kind of gut-focused diet like we spoke about earlier on and kind of avoiding unnecessary antibiotic use and kind of stimulating that, that good gut microbial environment might, might uh, kind of reduce your risk of getting a bad dose of COVID if, if you did get it. Mm. And were the profiles uh, around the gut microbiome that were found to be more detrimental um, to people who could who go on to develop more severe COVID like more severe pneumonia did that tie in with um their overall metabolic health and were those people perhaps more overweight because I know there's been a lot of research that's come out you know like you say observational not a lot you can do at the moment except for kind of speculate and you know think more about our food environment but there has been a lot of mention around obesity and poor metabolic health with people who go on to develop more severe cases of COVID. So I was wondering if, yeah, does the gut then tie into that? Yeah, I, I think it does. Again, you have, we have to be careful because mm. all of it is, is so new. It's hard to make these big conclusions, but we can, we can speculate. So the gut does play a role in, or the gut microbiome, 
most likely does play a role in our metabolic health and, and in our weight because it can control things like blood sugar levels and insulin and, and kind of satiety hormones like I spoke about earlier on and probably controls uh, our, our weight gain at the same time. So there is maybe some evidence, uh, which is still a bit uncertain, that um, people with more severe COVID infections uh, are, sorry, people that are more uh, overweight or obese might get more um, severe uh, COVID. Mm. Uh, yeah, that probably makes sense because if you're extremely overweight and you have really poor metabolic health, your immune system probably isn't going to be as good. You know, overall, you're not healthy. It's not necessarily just to do with weight gain and energy balance. It's to do with your overall health. You know, you mm. might, if you're extremely obese and you kind of have poor metabolic health, you probably have kind of underlying cardiovascular disease mm. or you might have uh, insulin resistance, for example, and all of these might play a role. So definitely there is a role for the gut microbiome in that. But we have to be careful that the gut microbiome is just one part of a jigsaw in overall health. You know, there's so many other factors, including, you know, our genetics, including our diets and, and everything else. So as, as, as fascinating as the field of the gut microbiome is, we have to be careful not to oversell it. It's one part of overall health that, that kind of can tie into, um, you know, yeah. certain states. No, absolutely. And speaking of overselling um, the benefits, uh, back to kind of the food industry um, arena. So you mentioned that um, the European food have come down hard on marketing around probiotics. But what about the marketing around of gut friendly that we see so often, Um, you know, and just saying this food is good for your gut. I know there's things like Yakol, I know there are loads of other um, kind of gut-friendly drinks that are on the market, as well as like yogurts and other things. So do you know much about that and about the regulation there? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm not in kind of food law, but I, I do know it's, it's very hard to regulate thing, a, a company saying it's gut-friendly because that's yeah. not technically a health claim or sure. a nutrition claim. A probiotic, they are saying, is a, a health claim which is, is fair enough. It's like saying, um, you know, this product will strengthen your bones. I think you're allowed to say that if it has a certain amount of calcium or, or vitamin D in it. But food companies tend to get away with it by using some of these airy-fairy terms like, you know, gut-friendly or they start using things like live culture in it or live organism, which is fine, but they're not. So it sounds like a health claim. People will look at it and say, oh, that, that means it must be good for it. But really... It's not legally crossing any boundaries, but at the same time, that product might not actually do anything for you. Mm, no, completely. That makes sense. And I guess, you know, we just need a bit of more time and kind of regulation to tighten it all up a bit. And maybe some of them are beneficial, but we just don't know. Yeah, exactly. And that is a problem. If you're a small food company and you want to put something in, in order for you to kind of get that, claim approved mm. you know your product has to go through years of testing so which costs you know so much money and it's just going to take a long time so i mean i do have sympathy for for companies that want to do it but at the same time the people like esther are there for the reasons of safety you know sure. and in certain other settings and environments you can have companies or other countries which can claim whatever they want to claim which as you spoke about before it's really dangerous for the whole wellness in, the wellness industry because people can just be duped into thinking that a certain product will, you know, 
stop them. Exactly. Yeah, and they'll take it instead of their cancer treatment or something like that. And it's just really dangerous to have. You need to have those safety regulations. I know. I remember watching Giles Yeo, who we had on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. He did a documentary, Clean Eating the Dirty Truth, and it was like some crazy alkaline diet that had been sold oh, yeah. to people with cancer who went to the States to this ranch. And my, it was terrifying to have it. Yeah, so, and all the diet, didn't she, as well? Yeah, yeah ter- obviously yeah. too terrible. So, um, quite a hot topic at the moment, and like with everything else with the gut so many varying opinions and kind of different timescales given. Um, so from the scientific perspective, how long away do you think we are from personalised nutrition on the basis of analysing an individual's gut microbiome? Um, I don't think we're actually that far, to be honest. We're, it, it is probably already reality in terms of, there have been some very good studies done, which I can talk about, I suppose scaling that up to the masses is, is just what takes yes. a long time, like like anything. So, um, again, we have to remember that the microbiome is one piece of the puzzle. We're never going to be able to personalize our entire health just based on the microbiome. We mm-hmm. will be able to have personalized medicine based on you know our genetics, our microbiome, our other parts of our lifestyle, but they, they all have to be put together into the whole puzzle rather than just using the microbiome. So there was a, a really interesting study by a group in Israel a few years ago where they showed if they, um, each individual would respond really differently to certain foods uh, based on their, their kind of blood sugar levels, for example. So if they would take one person like me, for example, and feed me an apple and my blood sugar wouldn't rise at all, where they give an apple to you, for example, Ali, and your blood sugar would rise usually. And if we both uh, had bread, for, uh, for instance, instead, maybe the curves were the other way around. I would spike hugely and you would mm. kind of stay flat. So they were able to predict these blood sugar responses based on the people's microbiome, based on their uh, genetics, I think, as well, based on their diet and their lifestyles. They put all these factors together. And by doing this, they've now conducted studies where they have personalized diets for people, where they can say, you should eat kind of apples and bread but avoid rice and artichokes or, or whatever uh, and that will have the best effect for your blood sugar they've done this for blood sugar but this will lead to kind of targeting other parts of health as well let's say cholesterol levels or, or weight so that was a fascinating study in lots and lots of people and they're kind of continuing to do that so we almost are at the stage of personalized nutrition and um, but I don't know. It's all to do with business and politics about how you can actually scale that up to the to the masses. It's going to be available in a kind of to privileged people first, of course. You know, it's going to cost money. I don't know when personalized medicine will get to kind of a global scale. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to be quite hard to do, and that will be down to you know politics and probably funding the NHS and things like that. Sure. So we really are close to essentially breaking it down. Take giving a stool sample to scientists, then looking at our gut microbiota and what populations we have present in its composition, and then advising you on the foods that are essentially beneficial for you and not. Yes, yeah, we're close. As I said, at the moment, it's mm. just for blood sugar. We might blood, be able to okay. do blood sugar, and we might you might have to provide more information than just a stool sample. Mm-hmm. You might have to say, this is what my diet and exercise is and blah, blah, blah. So yes, we're very close to that. 
aspects of health. As I said, that's just for blood sugar. And there's so many other aspects yeah. of health that define our health. So many aspects of our environment, you know, our mental health can control mm. our physical health, our kind of the community that we grow up in, you know, just your postcode is probably the biggest determinant of your health mm. than any other factor. So there's just so many other factors that, that define our health that our microbiome is never going to be uh, just the, the, the one key answer. Absolutely. And that brings me on to ask you about the connections between the gut brain access and the gut and gut health and um, positive brain and mental health. So what is the current evidence looking like in terms of probiotics and mental health? I know um, I've heard like anecdotal kind of stories of certain like psychiatrists who are private and not operating in the NHS, um, you know, giving probiotics out to their patients because obviously they're not, um, you know, stuck with having to do with the guidelines. So what is the evidence kind of looking like at the moment? Um, there's not great evidence yet in humans for um, mm-hmm. robotics and mental health. So I know I sound like I'm repeating myself all the time, but mental health is is has so many parts to it. You know, our kind of social settings, our friendship circles, our stress levels and everything. And there is some really interesting evidence that the gut microbiome may impact how our brain works and therefore how we think and feel, feel so our mental health. So... You know, that happens in lots of different ways because the gut microbiome produces neuro- neurotransmitters, for example, these chemicals that affect our brain. It kind of controls inflammation. So therefore, there has been lots of evidence in animal studies um, which have shown that certain bacteria or probiotics can, for example, reduce stress levels or reduce these kind of symptoms of depression in animals. There has been a small number of good studies in humans um, which have shown slightly promising results. So there's a certain probiotic on the market now um, which has been shown in a small number of humans to reduce cortisol, this uh, stress hormone. There's a couple of other probiotics as well which have been shown to light up regions of the brain or the electrical activity in regions of the brain which are involved with um, kind of happier emotions, I suppose, and people will respond to kind of negative uh, stimuluses um, a bit better. Uh, but it just isn't quite there in terms of clinical practice yet. So I don't, I can't, you know, get my head around any doctor mm-hmm. who, who would prescribe a probiotic yet for a someone, say, with clinical depression, for example, um, because, you know, there just isn't good enough evidence yet. I could see it happening in the future yes. as an adjunctive treatment. You know, there's never going to be one probiotic which will cure a mental health disorder completely. Mm-hmm. Like everything, mental health is so complex that it will take a combination of um, psychology and sociology and, and everything to help. But nutrition definitely does play a huge role in mental health. And I think targeting the gut microbiome could be a, a, an important part of that. And, and there could be what is known as psychobiotics available in the future to, mm-hmm. to play a role. But at the moment, the evidence just isn't good enough in humans. Mm. Because can you explain to our listeners how it is that the gut's been termed as the second brain with, you know, all the serotonin cells that are present? Yeah, so there's a few different ways the gut kind of communicates with the brain. Some that are kind of physical connections, some that are kind of biochemical connections. So um, we have the central nervous system is the kind of whole area of your brain, but we also have a whole peripheral nervous system. So that means there's lots of nerves which connect our brain to the rest of our body. Uh, all throughout our body and our gut is really heavily connected through this peripheral nervous system to the brain 
uh, mainly through this one really important nerve called the vagus nerve, which is kind of physically connects the brain uh, and the intestines. So already there's been signals, before we even think about bacteria, being sent from the gut mm. to the brain, these electrical signals all the time. So previously we thought that these were kind of just one-way signals. The brain w was telling the gut what to do by sending these electrical signals down through the vagus nerve. But the big kind of revelation in that is that actually this is a two-way connection. And the gut is actually sending lots of signals up to, the, up to the brain as well. So our gut cells can produce lots of uh, chemicals, mm -hmm. um, such as neurotransmitters, for example. And these neurotransmitters are little chemicals which... Uh, play a role in our brain in terms of making us feel happy, making us feel sad, making us feel stressed. And our gut microbes within the gut can also produce some of these neurotransmitters and produce lots of other chemicals which uh, signal throughout this kind of pathway. Um, so yeah, there, there are just kind of lots of both physical and biochemical ways that mm. the goings on in the intestine are kind of physically transported up to the uh, to the brain, for example, through the blood, through these different chemicals, or they can kind of send messages through the through the vagus nerve and other other nerves connecting the two. Sure. So in terms of yeah, so just to kind of uh, summarize, so in terms of probiotics as an intervention with things like clinical depression, the evidence isn't quite there. But of course, you know there are studies like the Smiles trial. Um, Prof. Felice Jackers about you know Mediterranean diet. So there is um, evidence linking you know how nutrition plays such a large role in mental health. But in terms of the probiotic kind of gut health sphere, we're not quite there yet. No, we're not there. But mm. again, not to say that we, we can't be there. I mean, the Smiles trial is a really good example of a of a big study done well. And a lot uh, the big problem is it's very hard to conduct big, good studies in the field of nutrition because Absolutely. it's not like you can tell someone to take a pill every day, follow them up like you can in pharmaceutical trials, follow them up after a few weeks and see has that pill had an effect on whatever health outcome. Because nutrition is very hard thing to control. It's very hard to tell someone mm. eat this type of food for this amount of time because for a few different reasons, because we're all eating food every day and someone who's involved in that study will probably might change their diet for whatever reason that one day because they're going to a party or they're you know going out for a night or whatever or they want to get a takeaway and at the same time nutrition takes a much longer time to affect our body than a drug for example a drug can work overnight nutrition is a much more kind of slow acting process so our it's our diet over our lifetimes which actually play the biggest role in our health rather than diet for a week that's why diets don't work you know we can't you might lose weight for a few weeks, but you're going to get, get that weight back on. Our diets are need to be this kind of lifelong thing. So I'm going to go a bit off point. But yeah, there is there is promise there for probiotics to um, to affect our mental health and benefit beneficially affect our mental health. But we need to conduct studies Absolutely. which are, are are rigorous and, and take take time. Sure. And so to finish up, what are you most excited about? Um, emerging in the field of um gut health and what does the future of your research look like yeah i think we've kind of touched on it. i think the personalized aspect is really exciting and that mm. is probably the way that all healthcare will hopefully go in the end because if you look at nutrition or drug trials there's only a certain number of people that will respond to a certain diet or a certain drug, for example. And there's a huge proportion of people 
which don't respond to that intervention. And so it could be that the gut microbiome might be playing that, uh, having that effect. So you you might only benefit from a certain drug or from a certain um, diet because you have a certain microbiome. So I think that's probably the way the world is going to go, hopefully. And instead of having kind of blanket advice for everybody, we may be able to say, you need to take this medicine or you need to have, uh, have this diet. And so I'd love to see that not just be available to the kind of privileged middle and upper classes. Mm. I'd love to see that available to everyone throughout the world. You know, we are doing this research in kids from low income settings who, um, who aren't uh, growing very well, for example. And even if you give them lots of food, um, they just don't kind of respond to that very well and they still don't grow very well. So there's lots of factors we need to factor into that. So I'd love to say, right, you, you kid, you need to have this certain type of food, you need to have this kind of environment, this type of bacteria, and that means you'll grow to your full potential. So, mm. yeah, personalized medicine is, is really exciting. I see that as the way of the future. Absolutely. And so just to finish off with a fun question, what would be your last supper meal? So your ideal starter main dessert if you had one day left to live? Oh, I know that I was, I was thinking about this when you said it to the girls as well. I'm probably going to pick nothing that is classically good for your gut anyway. It's gonna be I know, but that's that's the fun of it. That's the yeah, fun of it. Yeah, high fat, high sugar, everything. But I guess it's your last meal. You don't exactly. care. Exactly. Um, let's see. I I'm probably sounding like a bit of a snob, but I I'm kind of sucker for Italian food, and I kind of spent some holidays in Italy as a kid. So I love uh, uh, bruschetta, just very simple kind of bread with a bit of tomato and olive oil on it, a bit of a starter. Uh, let's go with a, a seafood pasta, I think, okay. as, a, as a main course. I think that'd be very nice, with kind of some shrimp and things like that. And I think maybe a sticky toffee pudding for, for uh, a dessert. Just for a sticky toffee pudding, yeah. You have to bring in the, yeah, the British kind of vibes in at the end. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, very nice, sounds delicious. I'm also, Italian's my number one. Oh, nice, nice, yeah. yeah. Very good Italian food, yeah. Hard to, hard to resist. I know. Well, thank you so much, Rory. You've been an absolute fountain of knowledge. And yeah, yeah, it's been so lovely chatting. Thank you. That's great. But our wonderful guests, you can find them on Instagram, Rory Robertson's handle is The Nutri Doctor, which I'll put in the show notes. And Alana and Lisa's handle is The Gut Stuff. Nutritank are proud to have featured on many of the UK's leading networks and publications, Jamie Oliver's website and his Channel 4 show, Jamie and Jimmy's Friday Night Feast, BBC News, BBC Radio 4 on Sheila Dillon's The Food Programme, Women's Health, BBC Bristol and the Royal Society of Medicine. Nutritank is an innovative information hub of food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine promoting the need for greater nutrition and lifestyle medicine education within healthcare training and empowering members of the public to improve their health. Join the movement to bring greater nutrition and lifestyle medicine education nationwide. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Remember, if you want to find more about Nutritank, visit the website, Nutritank.com. Also, find us on Twitter, Nutritank underscore info, and Instagram, Nutritank underscore official. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. It will really help with our mission at Nutritank to be the leading hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine. Bye for now.